Hello and welcome. You're listening to In Situ Science, where we take you behind the scenes of scientific discovery. My name is James O'Hanlon, and this episode, we get to meet behavioral ecologist and science communicator, Dr. Hannah Rowland, who shares with us her wit and wisdom and denies being a twitcher. And this week, I'm joined by a very special guest. She's a behavioral ecologist from the University of Cambridge. She has her very own podcast called The Beepcast, which we'll talk about later on. And she's come all the way from the UK just to be here on that podcast. Is this right? Yes, yes, I yep. all <laughs> She is, of course, the one and only Dr. Hannah Rowland. Hannah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Now, just to start off, can you explain what behavioral ecology is? Okay. Um, well. Because you don't often hear, you hear terms like zoologist and biologist and entomologist, but behavioral ecology is something that people might not hear very often. Yeah, so people may have heard of ethology perhaps Mm -hmm. so very famous scientists um from the early 1900s like nico tinbergen and robert hind and uh other people that were studying the behavior of animals were were called ethologists Mm -hmm. and they were the work that they did was to understand the mechanisms behind behavior. So yep. the really famous example is the the gulls that Tinbergen studied. They have a little red dot on the underside of their beak and Tinbergen discovered that that red dot was something that the chicks would imprint upon. So he was getting... And imprinting means that they they see it when they first hatch out of the egg and they mm-hmm. recognise it as a particular signal that's, a ver- that's very important yeah. to them. And so we have this thing in, in animal behaviour called ethology um, that wasn't about why, why behaviours had evolved, why they were beneficial for an animal. It was more why they... What makes them happen? Why, yeah. why do, why do starlings sing first thing in the morning? Mm-hmm. Why, why do chicks peck at these red yeah. dots? So it's then. A very descriptive approach to animal behavior and. Yeah. And so behavioral ecology was, I don't know whether it was, whether the actual term was coined by Nick Davis and John Krebs. So Nick Davis is a professor, um, of, behavioural ecology now um, <laughs> at, at the University of Cambridge and Lord Professor John Krebs. Oh, that's right, he's, he's a political figure now, isn't he? He is. Um, <laughs> they together coined this or, or created this research area called behavioural ecology where they focused their attention on the, the evolutionary reasons for behaviour. So mm-hmm. why is it that... Um, that certain birds will lay eight eggs in mm. their nest each breeding season, and and what's the the adaptive value of that? They 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 focus their attention on what we call the the ultimate explanation, mm-hmm. so the the adaptive explanation for behaviour. So that whether those individuals breed more often. Uh, whether they have more grand offspring, mm-hmm. whether they're so not just they're doing this to get food, but they're doing this to pass on more them, and yeah, more, genes. more genes, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So Nick Davis and John Krebs uh, moved away from the more mechanistic view of animal behaviour 
to the the actual explaining why these behaviours evolve. So why why have cuckoos evolved to parasitise, so lay their eggs in another bird's nest and not rear their own offspring? Mm-hmm. And why is it that that great tits lay eight eggs in their nest? Mm-hmm. These are little birds that are about the size of your fairy wrens. And in, in nests in the spring, they lay, on average, about eight eggs. And that's the, the optimal number, the best number that they can lay mm-hmm. for having as many offspring that then go on to breed themselves. So lots of animals could have, could probably make more eggs, mm-hmm. um, but it's a heck of a lot of work to lay more than eight eggs, yeah. a lot of energy, and also uh, a lot of energy to rear those chicks. Mm-hmm. And so they balance the, the cost of laying lots of eggs and, bre- and rearing lots of chicks with the benefits of then having those chicks go on and live, but also being able to breed again the next year. Yeah. So if they did it all in one go, they'd have no energy left for next year. Yeah. So that's, I think that's what I would say is behavioural ecology, is it's the understanding individuals' behaviour from a, an evolutionary perspective, why it's evolved and why it's the optimal behaviour. Right, and so in behavioural ecology, you tend to specifically work on things like anti-predator defences and things like that. Can you maybe tell us just a bit about what it is specifically you do and the kind of things you research? Yeah, so I um, I did a PhD at the University of Liverpool in the UK where I studied a particular type of coloration called countershading. Okay. So if you can think of a uh, an animal like a shark, mm-hmm. they generally have a darker skin coloration on their on their back, so their dorsal side, and a lighter pigmentation on their belly, so their ventral side. And for a long time, it had just been assumed by scientists that this type of coloration had evolved because it would help animals be camouflaged. So if you think of, um, you can actually, you can, I, I, the way I do it is I, Roll my sleeve up. Same example I use when I'm teaching. (laughs) I roll my sleeve up and obviously we've got lights above our head and we're pretty much cylindrical like a shark or Mm -hmm. a caterpillar. And so when the light comes down, the top of our arm is a lot lighter, but we cast a shadow on the bottom of our arms. So countershading had been hypothesized to to conceal these shadows. So if you've got a dark back and a light belly, then if you're illuminated from above, your back gets a bit lighter and your light belly counterbalances the effect of these shadows. So that that was hypothesized to evolve to conceal shadows. Mm -hmm. So it might be that they just then blend in better with the background that they're being viewed against, so they haven't got a, a noticeable gradation in their shading. Or it might work to obliterate... So to get rid of a predator's ability to look at three-dimensional shape. Mm-hmm. So while I didn't really look at the 3D aspect of countershading, I did a whole load of experiments making pastry caterpillars, so <laughs> uh, flour and lard caterpillars that were countershaded or uniformly coloured, and I presented them to wild, free-living birds and looked at which ones they predated to yeah. see whether there was any extra benefit of being countershaded, and that's that's what I found. Uh, those that have this two-tone coloration mm-hmm. are less attacked than those that are just a uniformly dark or light coloration. You mentioned countershading, which is a form of animal camouflage, and there's lots of different types of animal camouflage. I'm just wondering, 
why after all this time are we still studying animal camouflage? You know, it seems sort of intuitively obvious that, you know, if you're brown and speckled, you're going to blend into your background. Why are people still studying these things? A lot of it was published on this around the time of Darwin and Wallace's mm-hmm. correspondence, and then their contemporaries like Edward Bagner Poulton wrote a book about the coloration of animals and other books by Hugh Cart and then Malcolm Edmonds. Some of it's that it's very appealing visually, mm-hmm. obviously. But I think the reason we still study it today is that a lot of these examples of what we think of as adaptive coloration are people's speculation back in the mm-hmm. in the twentieth century. Back then we didn't know how other animals perceive things. Mm-hmm. So birds, for instance, have a very different visual system to us. Mm-hmm. So something that might be camouflaged to me, to a bird that sees the same colours as me, but actually also sees in the ultraviolet part of the the light spectrum so they they see a whole different range of colors to us something that blends into me might actually stick out like a sore thumb to a bird Mm -hmm. and while things like fish blending in with the background it it seems intuitively simple there Mm -hmm. are lots of uh, we're studying it now because i think we can answer it in more quantitative so by quantitative i mean we can actually measure what predators see we can actually measure how these things develop Mm -hmm. um the mechanisms of pigmentation yeah so much was just maybe accepted Mm -hmm. uh, as being camouflaged that then it actually works in a different way to just maybe blending in with the background there's i guess a a good example of that was a while ago there's some research on crab spiders so crab spiders are little white spiders that sit on flowers and it's always been assumed that they're hiding in the flowers to ambush things like bees. And when we looked into it with you know the modern technology that we have now, we can measure things like ultraviolet light. We find in some Australian crab spiders, they're actually very, very bright ultraviolet light, and they're actually standing out from the flowers. And this is like a super stimulus to bees. And yeah, this is a, an idea that people like Darwin Wallace wouldn't have come up with because they just didn't understand things like ultraviolet vision and stuff that we do now so yet like so darwin was the the first person to recognize that bright and conspicuous color patterns were involved in attracting a mate Mm -hmm. but he he couldn't figure out why certain caterpillars were so bright he said he he wrote a letter to wallace (laughs) saying why are caterpillars so beautifully and artistically colored yeah. And and Wallace said, well, you know, I'm paraphrasing Wallace here, but, you know, on my travels with Bates, so Henry Walter Bates was an English naturalist who spent yeah. lots of time in the Amazon looking for butterflies. You know, on my travels with Bates, we found that these things that are bright and conspicuous that don't mate, they're not attracting a, a, part, a mate or a partner. They're, they're usually pretty nasty tasting. They're pretty disgusting. And so Wallace hypothesized this type of defense called apersemitism so a a warning signal Mm -hmm. but it was just you know this is 1890 or something and he just hypothesizes that a bright and conspicuous warning signal probably signals to a a predator like a bird that they've got a chemical defense but then you know the years go by you know 50 odd years maybe before anybody actually tests the psychological mechanisms behind whether whether birds do actually go oh it's red and black Hmm. I'm going to stop eating it because it makes me feel 
sick. Yeah. So I think that's why we still study it because so much was hypothesized but never backed up with with real evidence of mm-hmm. whether things survive better or, you know, how they're perceived by a predator like you say. And so what about you personally? What drew you into this field? Is it you know, did it all start with your PhD or were you always interested in in animal signaling? So I was interested in in birds mm-hmm. and when I was looking for a PhD I was interested in a a study on bird behavior and and bird learning so my my phd involved not just the these uh studies on perception and predation it involved a study on how they learn to stop eating these warningly colored insects and that's what drew me to that phd was to understand how birds learn the association between a particular pattern or color mm-hmm. and it being something that doesn't taste very nice I can't say that I was somebody that was very interested in in animal coloration though I am now. <laughs> <laughs> I was I, I was more interested in bird behavior. Yeah, so would you say you're a twitcher? Um <laughs> I I'm, I'm a bird watcher. Okay. Um, <laughs> I don't know in in uh in 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 the UK twitching is where people drive hundreds of miles to see a bird, <laughs> which I have done once, but I don't do all the time. <laughs> yes, of course. So you have done lots of work on great tits. If you're well, if you're a biologist, you kind of get sick of hearing about them. I think. <laughs> a bit <laughs> like know, super sort of blue fairy lens. Yeah. So for people listening at home, can you maybe explain what a great tit is and why it's so important to biology? Okay, well, they are a small songbird. They... So like you said before, like a little fairy wren yeah, so they, thing. Yeah, they weigh about 20 grams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't actually seen a fairy wren yet in, in Australia. So I don't they know may... if I've ever seen a great tit now. <laughs> okay, so they're a little bird that um, has a black breast and um, it also has yellow on its, on its breast as well and it's green and black. As, mm-hmm. You can you can Google them. I'm yeah. not very. I'm not giving you the best description. Imagine these birds. They are. Um, I I guess that they're most famous. They've become such a what we'd call a model system. Mm-hmm. So a very heavily studied system in the UK and in, and across Europe. I think for me, I might be wrong. I think it probably stems from the studies at the University of Oxford at mm-hmm. Whiteham Woods that set up a huge nest box colony in the 1940s. I don't think it was huge in it when it was set up. It's now <laughs> absolutely enormous. And they've studied the behaviour, so the breeding behaviour, the territorial behaviour, um, song, food, and now even social networks, so how these birds hang around with each other in a woodland in flocks. Mm-hmm. They've been studying that since the 1940s. They've also been used, so I... My research has used them as a model predator. Mm-hmm. So I travelled to the University of Uvascular in Finland that has an artificial system called the Novel World where you can let a great tit into an aviary and, and watch it foraging on insects or artificial prey. And other people use them or, or study their personality. Mm-hmm. So they're one of the species of birds that has been suggested to have a personality spectrum from being very bold so very exploratory and perhaps even aggressive at at feeding stations to being very shy uh, and information gathering Mm -hmm. type birds so they have this spectrum of what we we in humans would think of as as personality and so the more recent research you've been doing is on masquerade 
Yeah. So we're talking about different types of animal camouflage. Masquerade is sort of the new kid on the block. It's, it's the hottest new type of animal camouflage, right? I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's one of those topics a bit like like a lot of these animal colour patterns that people just accepted. Mm-hmm. So Masquerade is where um, a, an animal has evolved to resemble an inanimate object. So, for example, you have frogs that resemble bird poo mm-hmm. and caterpillars that look like twigs mm-hmm. and, of course, the stick insects. Yeah. And today I met spiny leaf mimic, <laughs> uh, spiny leaf mimics, which are amazing. And I, I guess it was kind of accepted it was just another form of camouflage. Yeah. Or maybe a type of mimicry. Yep. So when actually, when I the year I was born, there was a very big debate, big load of discussion in the literature about whether masquerade was blending in with the background or whether it was mimicry, so pretending to be something you're not. Yeah. So you can have something that's just sort of say brown and mottled that blends into the background and isn't seen at all, or you can have something that's maybe brown and the exact size and shape and texture of a leaf, and it's not that it's blending in and not being seen. It can be seen, but it's being recognised as something that it isn't. Is that right? So John Skelhorn, who's at the University of Newcastle in the UK, um, we worked together and he led this project on understanding um, the mechanism by which masquerade stops predators Mm -hmm. from attacking things that we think look like a twig to 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 tease apart to to work out whether a twig caterpillar is benefiting from blending in with with all the twigs around it so like camouflage just not being noticed or whether it's noticed but misclassified or not recognized as something worth attacking so actually confused with a twig what john did was to take little day old domestic chickens so tiny little easter chicks (laughs) and he trained them to peck at branches so at um, twig branches Mm -hmm. and they pretty soon get very bored of pecking at twigs because there's no food on them and what's the point in pecking at something that you get no food from and so what John did then was with these chicks that had pecked at branches he also had another group that just hung around in their in their test cage and had a little wander never didn't know anything about twigs and then what he did was to give them a caterpillar that we think as a human looks like a twig Mm -hmm. and he just put them on a piece of white paper so the twigs can't blend in with other twigs. And he measured how long it took the chicks to decide to peck at these caterpillars. Mm-hmm. So if, they, if they're if they benefiting, they, they can't benefit from crypsis at all, so they can't benefit from camouflage because they're just hanging around on a white, on a white background. Mm-hmm. So if they don't look like a twig and the chicks don't think, well, I've been pecking at a branch branches are boring if they don't if they see the caterpillar and think it's a twig then they should not be interested in pecking it but if they just if these caterpillars only benefit from looking from being camouflaged then the chicks should just attack it really quickly and so what you found was that caterpillars attacked by chickens that had never seen a branch before were attacked within seconds so the chicks ran up to them gobbled Mm. them up thought they were delicious and the chicks that had um, had experiences of branches being unrewarding, took ages to attack these caterpillars. So they stick out like a sore thumb. They're just on a piece of white paper, and the chicks just... They just think it's a twig. They absolutely think it's a twig. So that was John's 
that was the real moment of knowing that masquerade is a, a strategy to to be seen mm. but to not be recognized as something that's worth eating that's a great example of you know, why we're still studying animal camouflage because here we are in the 21st century and we still don't actually know until recently that caterpillars that looked like twigs actually did look like twigs or whether they looked like caterpillars. So I guess both, both of us sort of work on this you know, animal color stuff and I think what really excites me about this field of research is that it's really sort of revisiting that you know, fundamental era in evolutionary biology where you know, the era of gentleman naturalists that I like to call it where I've got, you know, uh, Darwin running around the Galapagos and uh, Wallace doing the same thing in the Malay archipelago and Bates in the Amazon and you know, they came up with all these fantastic ideas that, that we're only just testing now and I think it's a really great example of science in practice because we have all these fantastic ideas but because we're scientists we're, we're not happy with a really good idea we need to go that extra step and, and test it and see what's going on. Yeah, I agree. And and they're they're just such visually appealing yep. animals that um, they're very rewarding to to actually just spend your time rearing them and then understanding why these beautiful patterns have evolved. You know, I look at I look at your mantids or I look <laughs> at um, amazing, intricate and complicated colour patterns of animals. Mm-hmm. I look at them and often just wonder why and how how mm. they've got to be where they are. So I mentioned before that you have your own podcast, so you're pretty comfortable here sitting in front of a microphone talking away. Well, I'm comfortable when it's me talking. This is the first time I've been. <laughs> really? I've had to be the interviewee. Yeah. <laughs> are you enjoying it so far? Yeah, it's very, I like job. this big boardroom. Yeah, you're <laughs> a very great. nice interviewer. Ah, oh, thanks. I try. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about the Beepcast, the Behavioural Ecology and Evolution Podcast. Yeah, so I um, host and produce a little podcast called the Behavioural Ecology and Evolution Podcast, or the Beepcast, mm-hmm. uh, which you can find on iTunes or at www.thebeepcast.com It's a monthly podcast where I talk about the latest findings in behavioural ecology and evolution so why do peahens prefer peacocks with lots of eyes in their tails why why do eye spots make birds frightened mm-hmm. um, and I also talk to scientists a bit like you're talking to me about what inspired them to be a scientist so what inspired you to do a podcast in the first place well there wasn't a podcast out there talking about animal behavior Mm -hmm. so i listened to a lot of podcasts about various topics and noticed that there just wasn't one out there that really focused on the behavior of animals or the evolution of behavior of animals. Mm -hmm. There were lots of science podcasts, but they were very wide ranging. And the other inspiration was to have the chance to read more science that isn't necessarily the topic that I focus on, that that is my area of research. Mm -hmm. So each month, you know, I read about guppy taste or so uh, guppy diet preferences and how they evolve or personality in birds or insect behavior so things that are really fascinating but aren't something that i come across uh, day to day as part of my mm-hmm. my research and so 
let's talk about science communication for a bit. So okay. you're working at a, a university, so you're going to be doing lots of research and probably lots of teaching as well. You know, what's the incentive to then go the extra step and become a, a communicator to the public? Um, the, the incentive for me is just the pleasure I mm-hmm. get from doing it. So I really enjoy, I'm on Twitter at Hannah M. Rowland, and I just enjoy telling people about science and mm-hmm. about the amazing behavior that animals show. That's the, that's the greatest incentive for me is to, is to tell adults and children alike, children alike about the cool things that have evolved in in the world. Yeah. Um, for somebody to learn about why why cuckoos look like sparrowhawks, uh, it, it's great to tell people about. I mean, it's very important because particularly in universities, I know you might disagree, but we tend to sort of get stuck in our own little world and just talk to each other about the same sorts of things. And it can kind of be hard to then reach out and, and share this with everyone else and... Yeah, so uh, yeah, another incentive is that the general public pay for my research. Mm-hmm. So research funding is through the government. And so taxpayers' money pays for the research that I do. And I think it's very much my responsibility to tell the public about why our research is important mm-hmm. and what we're finding and how we're adding to the knowledge of science and how that can then be used in education within schools about evolution and and other and other topics in science i think that's very much my responsibility to not not me alone but you know i think it's important that we that we we aren't locked away in in our, our ivory, ivory tower, tower. <laughs> yeah we both say it yeah um and, and to you know also to inspire the next set of, of scientists. Mm-hmm. So on your podcast, you've been asking lots of scientists about you know, what inspires them and, and why they became scientists in the first place. Can I flip it around and ask, as, as a little Hannah growing up, did you always want to be a scientist? What, what drew you into this career path? So um, I think maybe like a lot of children when I was, a li- when I was little, and maybe even now, I didn't really know what a scientist was. Mm. So I was always interested in animals. I I really enjoyed making birdhouses. Now I say birdhouses, they didn't look anything like a birdhouse. I just liked building things that birds might want to live in. <laughs> um, that I was wonderful. just yeah. So I used to just bang nails into wood and try and build little bird tables and yeah. things when I was really, when I was little. Mm. Um, and I was always interested in animals, so in birds and in mammals, and in, and like many teenage girls, in horses. <laughs> um, and so, from a, quite a young age, I actually wanted to be a vet. Yeah. Um, but as I, I and I did everything I, ca- I could to be a vet. You know, I went down all the right routes of the the courses at school that I needed to do, mm-hmm. and I did work experience at Chester Zoo which is a big zoo in the northwest of England and I went and did work experience in vet practices and I worked in a kennels and a cattery <laughs> and goodness only knows whatever else I went I worked at, at the University of Liverpool's vet hospital mm-hmm. um, and then when it came to it I realised I didn't want to work with sick animals, um, <laughs> but I didn't know how. I didn't know what other jobs were available. 
to, to work with animals because when I went to school, we didn't really get taught about animal behavior. Um, scientists, science, yes, scientists were people that worked in labs mm -hmm. and did, did genetics or microbiology. So I actually, when I realized I didn't want to be a vet, I was also really good at maths at school. So I decided I should do a vocational degree. And not very many people know it, but now they will. I actually started a degree in accountancy. Wow. How boring would that have been? I'm sorry for any accountants out there, but... Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I actually started a degree in accountancy uh, because I was good at maths. Well, it's um, the nice, sensible choice, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank goodness I... I had a change of heart. We just lost all our accountant listeners, goodness. <laughs> yeah. It's a very important job, but it just wasn't for me. Um, so a, a few months into accountancy, I realised I just really wanted to study science. So I went to the zoology admissions tutor and said, can I change courses, please? Mm -hmm. um, and, they, and they let me. And so where, I, where I've got today is different to what I thought I might want to do as a zoologist. So I was really interested in animal physiology. So I was always interested in these instances of where animals can live in extreme environments. Okay. So seals that can dive really deep into low oxygen or animals that can live in high temperatures or really extreme environments of sulfur and things. Mm. And then in the second year of my degree, I was taught by... Ian Harvey and Louise Barrett, who's at the University of Lethbridge, about animal behaviour. And we had to go out and do an experiment about foraging behaviour in ducks. So there's a, there was a, a study published many years ago about how ducks decide to forage when food is available in different amounts, and it's called the ideal free distribution. Mm-hmm. And it was actually a study by Nick Davis. And we replicated it. We had to go out and do an experiment. So we went out on cold February mornings throwing bread to ducks and and looked at how the ducks decide where to forage, whether they go to the place where there's really big pieces of bread or whether there's smaller pieces of bread that are getting thrown much more rapidly. And it, with those lectures and then that experiment, I really got fascinated in, in animal behaviour. That's how I went down that yeah. route rather than a physiology It's so interesting how just these you know, small handful of experiences in university can sort of define a career in the future. I very rarely talk to scientists who end up doing what they intended to do in the beginning. I mean, particularly the veterinary science. There's so many people that go into veterinary science and realize that it's just all about putting animals down and, and cutting their nuts off or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm guessing your perception of what a scientist is now is quite different to what you thought Probably a lot more pastry caterpillars involved. Yeah, yeah, a lot more. Like, no two days are the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't think there was... If you if you look at my path to where I am now, it, it could look like there was a very planned route, but it, it definitely wasn't. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether I ever thought that I'd be... I certainly say... So when my mum asked me what PhD I might be interested in, I said to her, I definitely don't want to work on insects. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that's what I do work. You know, I, I do work on yeah. caterpillars and moths. Maybe that's because the, work that the, 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 um, the lectures that I had on insects were more about parasites that used to make me, you know, scratch <laughs> during my lectures. So, yeah, things that, yeah, they're, they're my idea of what 
sciences on a day-to-day basis and I'm not sure I ever had a firm idea until I got into it really Mm -hmm. but it's different every day some days I'm at my desk all day some days I'm out in the woods some days I'm in Australia yeah exactly (laughs) in the middle of a cyclone (laughs) and so what's next for your research any new projects coming up so uh John and I carry on rearing our twig mimicking caterpillars to try and understand get to the bottom of masquerade and how it works yeah and and how how the caterpillar's behavior enhances their camouflage their Mm -hmm. masquerade i i'm very still very interested in how birds perceive their food so i'm very interested in how they sense how food tastes this is such a tricky area of research trying to get inside the brain of another animal yeah it seems like such an obvious question here how do birds perceive things but it's almost unanswerable in a sense yes it's hard with birds because unlike us who can say oh that tastes nice or that tastes nasty or even babies who haven't got language but Mm -hmm. can show you a facial expression if something's pleasant or if something's unpleasant birds have these really static faces you know they've got a hard beak (laughs) they can't smile um rodents like little rats and mice Mm -hmm. when you give them sugar they they do a very similar behavior to to human babies that they you know smack their (laughs) lips together and show that they're that there's some preference for it and they'll consume it avidly but birds birds are much harder to to understand whether they like something or whether they dislike something so the first step is just to work out what behaviors they show when something is pleasant and something's unpleasant Mm -hmm. well we'll we'll check back in with you in a couple of years and see what's happened but we've been talking for a while we should probably wrap wrap things up yeah um so if people want to hear more about your research you have a website at hannahroland.co.uk and you're on twitter at hannah m roland okay or you can check out search for the beepcast on itunes and yeah www.thebeepcast.com thanks for coming on hannah thanks for having me Thank you for joining us. You can find out more about what happens behind the scenes of scientific discovery at insituscience.com or on Twitter at InSituScience. My name is James O'Hanlon and I look forward to seeing you again on the podcast.